American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. We're going to be looking at how emancipation and the South were represented, how they appeared in visual culture in the years from the late 1860s through the turn of the century. And a couple of, couple of major basic questions we have to keep asking ourselves would be, you know, who's making the image? Who's looking? And uh, who has the power to represent? So we're going to start off with you know, just briefly you know, looking at this image, uh, Carter Knives, popular print, uh, very immensely successful. Um, New York publisher, and we have here the old plantation home, 1872. What does that mean? Um, you know, why are they producing an image like this in 1872? And does it mean that this is a view of the South before the war, when it was the old plantation home, or does it mean this is the South now, and it's the old plantation home, but look how happy the slaves are. You can see representations from before the war showing happy slaves dancing around their cabins. And you can see the same thing after the war in this Carter and Ives print. Um, you know, it's really pretty transparent. It's pretty one-dimensional, I think. Everyone is happy. There's the big house, but no one is working. They're singing, they're dancing, they're playing. So this is one northern view of the South. Um, I find that the more you look at the visual culture, the more you look at painting and printmaking and sheet music, photography, any medium, it, what, what it seems to all boil down to is that the South is a place um, of many different angles and, and it's seen in a way that's almost schizophrenic. So, so keep this in mind. And then compare it to the Thomas Nast Harper's <coughs> Weekly illustration, which uh, Richard West showed you this morning. Um, two different worlds. You've got the happy plantation, uh, the freed slaves, or the ex-slaves dancing around. And, and then you have this grisly representation of Southern justice, um, which is absolutely scary. It's a horror show. That's what's going on in the South. There's killing, there's massacres, um, there's, there are lynchings. You know, this is not just a lynching scene, but it's a gothic lynching scene in which you know, the whole event takes place at night, and it's sort of weird and ghastly and, and scary. Um, and Southern justice is a monster. So, you know, how do these compute? There's the old plantation home, happy dancing, freed slaves, and Southern justice, which is this world of a nightmare. Nightmares, violence, blood, um, and, and death for black people in particular. And yet at the same time, you have Thomas Borderman Wood, who is, puts all this hopefulness and optimism in his painting, The First Boat. 
Represented here. And what I want to do next is spend a little bit of time looking at Winslow Homer. You've already seen paintings by Homer in the Metropolitan Museum. And uh, you know, he's a northern artist, he's a white artist, and so we have a northerner's point of view in his work. But you, you might ask, well, what point of view is this? Homer made several trips, at least two trips, possibly more, to Petersburg, Virginia, and the vicinity in the mid-1870s. And you know, scholars are still kind of squabbling about, well, how many did he take? Was it two? Was it three? Did he just go to Petersburg? Did he go to North Carolina? Well, nobody knows. We know nothing about what he did in the South. So, uh, but we do have a few facts. Um, Wherever he was, he made a study of the freed African-American people, the former slaves, and also those who had been born free, young people born after emancipation. And what he seems to have been really interested in was examining and ruminating about how these people were in transition. They were in a new world. And the way he represents these people in the few paintings he did, based on his Southern experience, are worth examining because they're quite different from those of pretty much every other painter who did you know, similar subjects. So the big question, though, is why? Why did he invest in this subject? Was he just gathering material because artists had to gather material to make paintings from that people would buy? Or was there something deeper going on in the way he was seeing and thinking about um, meditating on the situation of freed former slaves in the South? So um, all these paintings date from about the same cluster of years, 1876, 1877. Um, a visit from the old mistress which is, it's a small painting. It's another one of those paintings you'd have to sort of get up close to and really scrutinize. But we can see it nice and big here, so all the details should be legible. Um, well, what's happening? The title pretty much gives us a clue. Uh, the old mistress, well, it's pretty clear who the old mistress is. She is, has entered the cabin of these four people that we see here. They're all African-American, as you can easily see. Um, this seems to be their home. And a lot of questions immediately pop up. So Homer sets this up in a way that really charges the space. 
Does this remind you of anything you've seen before? Prisoners from the front. Um, and I'll show that in a minute. It's very much like prisoners from the front. You have you know, this kind of um, equilibrium struck between the one figure on the right, the four figures on the left, the freeze-like arrangement, um, and the space between. So here the, the black matriarch, she's the one in the middle, just as the, um, the southern the sort of representation of chivalry and prisons from the front was right in the middle. There's a space between them, and it's, it's kind of an electric space. They're staring at each other. Notice that they're on the same level. The black matriarch and the old mistress. They're equal in height. They're equal in the, the way their eyes kind of seem to walk together. And um, all the other people, including the baby, are also staring at the old mistress. Uh, so, what's going on here? It seems like a face-off, as if the women who live here are wondering, well, why is she here? She doesn't own us anymore. So, is, is there an assumption that the old mistress is white? Is there an assumption that the old mistress is white? Yes. Because I... I'm seeing something else. Okay, we'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> um, there are lots of things to see in here. Um, but certainly this is the old mistress, which was certainly understood at that time in that way. So what are the differences between them? They, they seem to have, you know, they're, they're both, it's like this face-off, you know, who's going to play, who has the power? And that's where it gets, you know, more complicated. So let's look at a few comparisons. So here's prisoners from the front. So it's, it's as if you know, we have prisoners from the front, except that it's all flipped. Black people instead of white soldiers, women instead of men, obviously. But basically the same composition and the same kind of very tense situation. The main figure, the one that keeps, I think, drawing your eye, the black matriarch, uh, very clearly because of her, her build, you know, she's, she's strong, she's brawny, she's wearing a headscarf and an apron, and so in a lot of ways she seems to represent the, the man of type, which becomes so familiar in visual culture. So, you know, who are these people? Are they types or individuals? You can type her as a mammy, and yet she doesn't do what mammies do in popular visual culture. What mammies do in popular visual culture is they're deferential. You know, they smile as a mistrait for mid-1880s, where I guess the new mistress is coming in and uh, checking up on servant, and then there's the Archimago stereotype, which is based on these older forms. And this is the life of Archimago, the most famous colored woman in the world. And she made the best pancakes. 
so this is from 1895. Well, what's different, obviously, is that no one in Homer's painting is grinning. You know, no one is scraping, no one is bowing, no one is being deferential. If anything, it's more like you know, the white woman is not really getting much of a welcome at all. But why are you here? Um, and we don't know why she's there. It's just the visit from the old mistress. And um, what's Homer trying to tell us? What's he trying to make us think about? There are some obvious differences. The mistress may be defeated, maybe a widow. She's wearing black. Um, she also has a fan suspended from a cord that she's holding. But the four women, it's interesting that there are no men here. Presumably the men or the men are out working, or maybe you know, they're not coming back, given the situation in the South at that time. Um, but these people are in rags. They live in a bare cabin, which doesn't seem to have any you know, sort of luxuries of any kind. And um, their clothes are all patched, and they're shabby. Um, and so there's obviously a contrast between their poverty, the, the lowly living conditions, and what seems to be the white woman's affluence. So we're left with a, a lot of questions. What's really going on here? What is the artist telling us? It's a very serious painting, right? Um, but then if you look at the criticism, it's kind of like, oh no, really? Did they really have to say this? But they did. Um, this is from one of the magazines, the Art Journal, which was a major um, art periodical at the time. The Art Journal says um, that here are these colored girls, and they are fat, shapeless, and stupid, and their eyes are blank like the eyes of seals. So this is the thing we always rub up against, and especially looking at Homer and his images of African-American life in the South during Reconstruction. Um, how did people see these paintings, and how did he mean them to be seen? Um, did he mean to make fat, shapeless, stupid colored girls? Or did he mean to say something more serious about this? Well, actually, since the Volia glimpse lecture the other day, you know, I hesitate to say strong women, strong black women, since you know, she sort of said, well, I don't want to, you know, we shouldn't say that anymore. But they are. I mean, they're, they're stolid. Um, they're impassive. They're uh, quite massive, especially this figure. So, so it's almost like, well, what's going to happen now? Just like prisoners from the front. Now what happens? We don't know. Um, yes, Kim? That's right. She is in their living space, so yeah, that does change the dynamic quite a bit. But it's like she's an invader almost, maybe. So let's look at 
the painting, which may have been intended by Homer as a pendant to this one, and you'll see why in a minute, Sunday morning in Virginia, in the very same setting. Um, and that's, that gives us a clue, actually, which I think is telling. Um, if we have the same background in the two paintings, then that gives us a clue how much these pictures are literally being staged by the painter. These are his invention. And so he's got the same background and two different plays that he's putting on um, in these two different pictures. So Sunday morning in Virginia um, of 1877. This is taking a sunflower to the teacher, a watercolor of 1875. And I'm comparing it, these with, this is just a detail from an, a, um, a centerfold engraving that Homer made for uh, Harper's Weekly magazine, marking the turn of the decade from 1860s to 1870. And finally, for comparison, um, an image entitled Education Among the Freedmen, which shows the Sea Island School in um, South Carolina, which, as I mentioned, the captain was run by or started by Anglo-Americans uh, Anglo from Philadelphia, which is a famous abolitionist city. Well, what all, this, all these things together suggest is that the subject of literacy in the post-bellum South were literacy for the freed people was uh, something that was seen as essential. Um, it was seen as a right that these people had to become literate. And that with education, with literacy, um, change could come about. So being able to read is an agent of change. And that also relates to what Harper's uh, said at one point, the, the magazine that is in an article, the alphabet is an abolitionist. So here are these people um, who want an education, who need an education. Um, so Sunday morning in Virginia shows us two young people who are very well dressed, as you can see, with a Bible and they are reading it, probably reading it to the other people. Um, how can we tell? Because they're the only ones who have eyes on the page. The other two figures are, are listening. And then we have this older figure. And um, what do you think is the story here? Sunday morning, they're reading the Bible. How does Homer sort of arrange his figures and characterize his figures to sort of create a narrative? Uh, mm -hmm. education. 
information that has a value for shepherding that value moving forward. Mm -hmm. I think also there is somewhat of a, a, a biblical um, sensibility about the um, older female on the mm -hmm. side. Maybe just because I'm looking at the bonnet and thinking, you know, um, Considering it as somewhat of a sort of an angelic halo, hmm. uh, there's the king that you know has that sort of shepherding quality, so sort of like shepherding the you know um, children towards their education and freedom. So uh, it has a little bit of a liberation theology. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that's actually very interesting, the liberation theology uh, take on this. Uh, so another way you could read it, another way it has tended to be read, is that this figure of the old woman who's looking away, um, it's, not, it's as if she's dressed for church, too. We don't know if they're going to the service or not. She's looking away, though, and I think the implication might also be that uh, she can't read and probably never will, because she was born a slave, uh, she never learned to read, and, and it's almost as if there's no point in even trying it at, at this stage in her life, whereas these younger people have, have the hope um, of being able to become literate, being able to become educated. Um, but then there's the issue of because these two people, you know, the young woman, she looks as if she's middle class, she's wearing a very nice dress, she's wearing beads, her hair is done, the young boy next to her, as opposed to these two figures who are rather much blacker, and they seem to be much more, um, well, disadvantaged, you might say, they're wearing sort of generic um, country clothes, this woman, she has got little braids all over her head, so there's contrast in these types, and it's kind of weird, but uh, whenever I see this painting, it's almost as if, it's like those terrible ads for soap, you know, from the late 19th century, where they have black people using pear soap, and then all of a sudden they're white. Um, and the fact that these readers, these literate um, Bible readers, are paler, I'm not sure if there's anything symbolic or anything allegorical in this or not. But again, it's, it's just a question. You know, why did he paint these contrasting skin tones? Why did he represent the readers as light? Why are the non-readers so dark? Um, so it's, it's, these are very slippery pictures sometimes. It's hard to get a handle on them. Um, this one, this watercolor, oh, I just wanted to mention, Homer is thinking about black education, and he seems to be like, like really for it in this detail. We have a young teacher who's looking down at a book, and then three children, three young little girls together, one of them is black. So this blackboard, um, so it seems as if he's saying that everybody should have the same chance to get an education and support for black children. Um, 
taking a sunflower with the teacher, this is a tiny little watercolor. It's, it's at the uh, University of Georgia Art Museum. And, and Homer used this boy as a model in several paintings. He's, he's very sweet. He's, he has sort of a sad look on his face almost. And there's a blackboard down in the right in, on which Homer wrote his initials as if they were in chalk. The boy is in rags, as you can see. And he's got this giant sunflower and a butterfly on his shoulder. Um, why is the butterfly there? It's been suggested that the butterfly is a symbol of the soul of the psyche. And could it be a reference to metamorphosis? The notion that being able to read, being taught, will be that agent of change or the, the caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Um, the sunflower itself was unfortunately read by contemporaries as sort of you know, being uh, a parallel to the boy's face. But we can read it more positively as something that symbolizes turning toward the light. And so with that message here, so being becoming enlightened, turning toward the light. Um, so we can see this as, as a pretty hopeful picture. Um, but then again, we've got these comments from the critics that make us wonder, as Appleton saying, we think this is one of the funniest pictures Mr. Homer ever painted. And again, we have to say, well, what's so funny? But it was so funny. Um, was it so funny to Homer? We don't know. Um, what did critics say about Sunday morning in Virginia? So it seems as if Homer is treating these people with respect. He's giving them some dignity, maybe less than we would want, but certainly more than most people would ever. But then we have a critic again. You know, I feel like I hate reading this stuff, but there's reams of it. To answer the question you asked the other day, Rhonda, what is the criticism? Where, where can you find it? I want to talk to you about that. But So here's one critic. Four Negroes and Negresses, looking very like monkeys, are reading the Bible. So the question is, you know, were viewers so predisposed to seeing anything that had black people in it as, as funny or ludicrous or grotesque that they just couldn't grasp what was different about Homer's paintings? Or was Homer of that same ilk? You know, I, I kind of don't think so. But um, again, these are slippery paintings. Now the next one we'll see is the painting that you all had a glimpse of, at least at the Metropolitan Museum of Art the other day, um, dressing for the carnival. Um, it's, it's 1876, but actually, it's really 1877. I, I, didn't, I forgot to change that number. So what's going on? Again, we have this freeze-like composition, a number of African-American figures, children, women, one man, arrayed across the front. And the man, as you can see, is in these really, really bright suit, yellow and red and white, sort of shiny material. And in front of him, one woman is, 
sewing on a button, folding of the button in his jacket. And she was sewing it on behind of another woman who may or may not be sewing. Uh, it's hard to tell. And behind his neck, a little white butterfly. All these children are looking. There's five children here, one little girl here. It's the same kind of sort of strange seesaw equilibrium. And probably the same kind of narrative, um, irresolution of suspense that we've seen in prisons from the front. And um, Sunday morning in Virginia. So what's going on? Uh, it's some kind of holiday. All the children are dressed in rags and tatters, but notice that there are notes of red, white, and blue. This little kid holds a flag. This kid holds a little flag. Um, and so there seems to be something going on here that maybe is paper art. Um, the painting was exhibited with another title for the moment later, Fourth of July in Virginia. That complicates things. People, scholars have tried to figure out what are they celebrating? Uh, is it Fourth of July? And why should it be Fourth of July? Uh, bearing in mind what Frederick Douglass said, you know, what is the Fourth of July to the slave? But if it is the Fourth of July, then we have something that's very ironic going on. Because what the question the painting seems to ask is, how much better off are these people now than they were in slavery? Are they all that free? Because slave cabins are in the background. You see these tiny colored dots. There are more people in bright headdress are coming down to start celebrating the carnival. But what, what are we to make of the man in the middle. You know, he's gaily dressed. Um, it should be a festive occasion. And by the way, um, a lot of some scholars have argued that this is um, a celebration of the African um, festival of John Canoe, which was imported from West Africa. Uh, some have argued that it's Boxing Day because slaves used to celebrate on Boxing Day in the Old South. Uh, slaves, ex-slaves, free people also celebrated Emancipation Day. Or maybe it's the 4th of July, nobody knows. And you can read a lot of different opinions, but um, there's no way of telling. If it's a carnival, though, why isn't any, anyone having a good time? Everyone is really solemn except the kids who are sort of looking bemused and the, the oldest boy is grinning. The little girl has had a smile on her face. And they're all looking at the men, the only adult men in the painting. And why is he dressed in a clown suit? So it's, it's like a solemn picture of something that ought to be festive, or we think it, it should be festive. See this red blob here? He has a, a red carnation. The stem is in his mouth as if it were a pipe. And the red carnation is supposedly in Victorian flower symbolism, a symbol of brokenheartedness or an aching heart. So
so there's that too. But it's basically, it's a, it's a sober and monumental painting. Now, Deceit, but also enlightenment. So, but that's interesting. So it's a double-sided thing. I guess with Homer you always get double sides or maybe triple sides. Um, but then compare Homer's painting with this colored militia illustration from Leslie's, which uh, appeared in 1875. I'm pretty sure that Homer saw this illustration. And I'm pretty sure that you know, he based at least some of the composition of dressing from Carnival on this. But in the colored militia, the man being fastened into his uniform is, is really kind of uh, a figure of fun, an obvious figure of fun. An old uncle is holding up a bright pole, and everyone is kind of laughing at him. So in, by comparing dressing for the carnival with the illustration, um, you get a sense here, it's real, a painting of gravitas, I think. But why did Homer paint it this way? And what, what else can we get from making some other comparisons? Well, let's look at the center group because it's so interesting. A younger woman sewing on the button, this much more you know, kind of um, impressively tall and powerful figure doing something behind him and smoking a pipe. You notice how his, the brilliance of his rags is set off against the muted tones of the women's presence. So it's a very composed group. And um, so you, you have to start asking, well, um, what is this about? Is, is it political? Does it say something about what was the condition of freed people in the South in 1876, 1877. Um, did Homer just mean this to be a picturesque scene? Something exotic? One critic, at least who was a little more thoughtful than most of them, mentioned in a review that Mr. Homer is one of the few of our painters to make something of the Negro for picturesque purposes. So it's like maybe Homer just was saying to himself, why should I go to France to paint? Because it's the way everyone is doing. Because I can just go down south and you know, we've got some really good peasants there and it's a fresh field. Nobody is tapping yet. So is that what Homer is up to? Is he just getting colorful material? Um, so we see these picturesque tatters, or are they the marks of dire poverty? Is he commenting on the bleak outlook of these people? Uh, are they celebrating African-American traditions? Or are they just going to go entertain some white folks? So you've got these multiple layers of um, irony and contradiction, but it's interesting to look at how most other northern painters were representing African-American free people as old and kind of innocuous and kind of sweet. Or other painters like Jerome, the French academician, really highlighting the exoticism of the black man with this amazing tenderness. But then there's that one detail that's so telling in Homer's painting, 
when he has on his head. With the red, white, and blue cap. Which you'd never see anyone wearing ordinarily. But what it's based on, what it refers to, is the Liberty Cap, which was widely used as a symbol of American struggle for liberty during the Revolution, which was widely used in France during the Revolution. So here's this man, dressed in clown, he's wearing a red, white, and blue Liberty Cap on his head. It's like, is he free? How free is he? Now this is like, an ironic exclamation mark of this composition, I think. And at least this is the way I read it. It's not the only way to read it. But isn't there something to think about in the fact that this is the only adult male in the composition, and he's dressed as a clown? What kind of a role model is he? What future do the children have? And, and then there's this one detail that I always think is interesting, and no one really talks about that his feet are facing in two different directions. You know, it's like first position in ballet. Um, one going this way, one going that way. No one else has their feet laid out like that. So it's almost as if he could go in either direction, backwards or forwards, which way would he go? So the more you look at this painting, the more complicated it becomes. And then, well, think about what else is happening in 1876. We've seen this in um, Richard West's wonderful talk. Um, what else is happening? How else are black men, adult black men, being represented? There's this absolute stunner of a drawing published in Harper's Weekly by Thomas Nast. This is the election year. Um, this was published in October 28. This powerful black man with an expression of utter rage and hatred on his face and a clutching rifle. He wants a change too. Um, and, and this is in the context of all the horrible things that were going on at that time. Um, there was the Clinton massacre in Mississippi, in which more than 20 black men were killed in 1875. There was the July 8th, 1876 Hamburg massacre in which six black militiamen were killed. Hamburg was, was an all-black town with its own militia. And there was a clash with some white people. And um, it ended up being this awful murder. Uh, they were, 1876 was a summer of race riots and terrorism. Uh, the Democratic Bloody Shirt campaign to uh, keep black people from the polls. Notice, interestingly, he has his foot planted on a bloody shirt. It's like, you know, we can't take it anymore. Um, and I can't, you know, think about the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. I can't not think about that when I see this image. But in contrast to it, doesn't Homer's grown-up man in the clown suit look all the more kind of hopeless? and sad, and it's like he's not going anywhere because his feet won't line up in one direction. So it's a, dressing for the carnival turns out to be kind of a troubling and puzzling picture, um, which, however, was described by one critic as a humorous Negro sketch, unfortunately. And I want to just quote you one thing. Now, this is, Nass wrote all over his cartoons, and um, 
just one of the inscriptions here behind the black man says, uh, Democratic ratification meeting, August 16th, Columbia, South Carolina. Put out of the way the white Republicans first, then the mulattoes, then the Negroes. So just one last comparison, um, which brings us back to the question of stereotype. You know, you look at representations of the mammy kind of figure of the old time southern um, black woman. Very often they're, they're smoking pipes, um, they have head scarves, uh, they're in rags. So this woman figure could be read as that kind of stereotype, but it has been suggested since the carnival maybe that this figure maybe could be a man. Um, a couple of you actually were talking with me at the museum about this the other day. And I am absolutely not sure. Um, and so it's kind of an open question, but compared to Willie Macon Walker's figure in the cotton field, this woman, or this mammy, figure by woman was very powerful, very serious, and uh, someone who's far deeper than your common stereotype. By the way, this is a Southern artist. Um, Walker was born in Charleston, South Carolina. He fought in the war, in the Civil War, on the Confederate side. And he painted works like these as tourist art, basically. People would come down. So you can't, you know, talk about representations of Southern um, life after the the war during Emancipation Reconstruction without talking about cotton, I suppose, since it becomes such a symbol of the South. And um, again, we have Homer, one of his one of the last of his uh, Southern scenes, the cotton picker, fifteen seventy-six. It's kind of interesting. He paints all of these in such broad years. End of Reconstruction, although we, we know it wasn't the end at this time, but still, it's right during this critical turning point that Homer um, turns to these subjects. Um, the Bolly of Glimp was, she showed this painting and she said she thought it was kind of romantic you know, because cotton picking isn't so pretty, which is true. But, but there's something quite um, thought provoking about these two women. They too were uh, powerful, sort of solid, and, and serious. They look as if they have interior lives. One looks off to the distance, the other looks down, and yet they're surrounded and almost engulfed by this endless sea. As if you know, they could never get out of it, they could never get to the, to the end. And see how much more serious homeless figures are compared to Walkers. You have the same little stock figures, you know, kind of happy, and they don't mind being cotton pickers. And you see this on sheet music ad nauseum. But then you know, we get to the question of, well, um, how do African-American people in the South greet people 
in the South, how do they represent themselves? Gee, they're not in a cotton field. Um, they're dressed in fashionable clothing. They, uh, you know, they look like uh, intelligent, serious people. This is the Jubilee Singers of Fisk University. Um, very new, all black college. They began to sing, well, they did sing this through fundraisers to the tour, saying um, they started out singing classical music, but uh, everyone wanted them to sing plantation songs, so they plantation songs. Um, nobody's wearing a head wrap, nobody's wearing rags, They're, they are modern young people, so this is, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be photographed in a cotton field. Um, and, and another question I think that is interesting to ask when we look at any of these paintings, Homer included, is how would a black person see these? These get a very different take on these paintings as an African American reviewing them as a white person. And the assumption is, I think, that they're pretty much all painted for white people. So there's an important point of view that's missing here. I wanted to just show a few examples of what is more prevalent in painting than what we see in the work of Homer. That is uh, the Joanne Morgan article. She talks about you know, this whole you know, the kind of crystallization of this view of freed people as basically uncles and mammies. You know, they're older, they're, they're harmless. Um, Henry also a Tanner's banjo lesson, which it's been interpreted in various ways, but which has that the telltale banjo in it. Um, Harry Rose on the Blessing, Tanner's The Thankful Poor. So it's like these represent African Americans as, as still you know, kind of humble, lowly, but good. You know, pious, old, and good, and happy with their lot. They're not going anywhere either. Um, and even in the work of a southern painter who wanted to create a more positive image of black life, we see the same thing. This is Richard Norris Brooks, a pastoral visit. He was a student of William Washington who painted that famous um, you know, burial of La Tournée that we, that we saw earlier. And he was active in uh, Washington, D.C. He was associated with the Virginia Military Institute. And he wanted to create a much more upbeat image of African Americans. And, and this is pretty upbeat in, show, in ways, in certain ways, because it shows an attached family, a father, a mother, uh, children, a nice home. It's not fancy, but it's, it's nice. They have food. Here's the pastor who's come to pay a call. It's, it's very realistic. And the father is shown as someone who's very dignified and thoughtful. They're all attractive. They're not stereotyped. But, but gee, what's that banjo doing there? Well, the, the banjo just won't go away. And um, it seems to still serve as this marker of um, someone who is seen as other. You know, the banjo, the minstrel tradition, the entertaining, etc. I'm almost done. Um, but I wanted to just spend a little more time with Winslow Homer, who went to the Bahamas, Nassau, in 1885 and 1898, 
1999, we already made a number of watercolor studies showing the uh, islanders on the water, who's are catching sharks, giant the sponges. Uh, but he also got interested in this derelict boat. And after the hurricane, in which a man is washed up on shore, there's a wrecked boat. We don't know if he's alive or dead. Um, a lot has been written about these watercolors as in so far as they seem to indicate Homer's fascination with black bodies. Um, you know, with, with these men who are nude or near nude and close to nature. But what it adds up to is the painting also in the Metropolitan Museum, which you may have seen, the Gulf, the Gulf Stream of 1899. And if you read the Peter Wood article, you know, he, he does a very interesting and very thoughtful job of talking about this painting and the context in which it was created. Um, Believe it or not, in the old days, the old bad days, scholars used to write about this painting as if this guy weren't even black. That you know, would be like, oh, it's like the old man in the city, anyway, or you know, the universal human condition. So you know, it's like, what, really? You know, don't you think it's important that he's black? And don't you think it's kind of important that this is sugar cane snaking out of the hole? Um, it's like, hello. Uh, and what about those sharks? You know, if you know anything about the slave trade, you know that sugarcane was one of the main components of the triangle trade. And the sharks are no doubt allusions to the Middle Passage. Remember the turn page, the slave ship. Homer knew that painting, and um, you know, the allusion to slaves being thrown overboard to be devoured by the sharks. I mean, you can't not see that. So, and here they are, you know, just sort of swimming around. The water is red. And in the back is a water spout. And the man is just lying there. You know, his ship is dismasted. He has no sail. He has no rudder. Um, the boat is Anna out of Key West, Florida, so we know where this is. Uh, there's a ship on the horizon, but he's not looking in the direction of the ship. So, so it's a, a, an image of being hopelessly addressed. And I think it's very convincing that Wood interprets painting as a kind of somber fatalistic meditation of the fate of the African Americans around 1900. Um, another detail that I've always found particularly interesting was the fact that there's a black cross right in front of the broken mass, as if a, the ship is his grave, you know, he's going to his real or figurative doom. And so the context um, of 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson, which set up the whole separate but equal facilities, so you know, the Jim Crow era, reinforcing segregation. In 1898, there were horrible riots in North Carolina and South Carolina and violence and lynching became part of a system ensuring white domination, which, which we all know. So I think it's quite convincing and quite plausible to read this as an element um, of the black condition around 1900. And it's not funny. 
Although even here, you know, critics wrote some of the most, the stupidest prose you could possibly imagine. I'm not going to quote it to you because it's too depressing. Um, but then there's and yet. And yet. In Florida, at the same time, there's this very interesting photographer, Alvin Harper, in Tallahassee, who runs a studio, and all these people come and they close for their portraits. And you know, they're representing themselves. Um, in the midst of all these troubles, all this turmoil, all this violence, we have this pictorial record of people posing in their best clothes. Uh, they're good looking, they're young, they're intelligent, they're representing themselves versus being represented. Um, and I think that that's really quite fascinating. And, and of course, we, we know that Homer is painting for a northern audience. No southerners are going to want to see this. Well, maybe they would want to see it because it would maybe be a sign of hope for white supremacy. Um, but another end yet, and I'm almost finished, um, and yet, then look around, look, look at another direction, and you have Thomas Nelson Page, who popularized the plantation tradition genre of Southern writing. Uh, he was a lawyer, born in 1852 in Virginia on one of the old family plantations. One of the first families of Virginia, in fact. So they probably all palled around with General Lee. Um, and he becomes a prolific writer of um, books like Social Life in Old Virginia Before the War, published in 1897. Um, a collection of stories called In Old Virginia, O-L-E, Virginia, of 1887. And um, he also wrote The Negro, The Southerner's Problem. And he mourned the passing, and this is his words, he mourned the passing of the good old darkies and deplored their replacement by new issue blacks, as he called them, who were lazy, thriftless, insolent, you know, all the other um, derogatory terms that we, that we know about. So um, the book was illustrated by Mrs. Cowles. I can't tell you anything about them because I didn't have time to fish around. And here's, this kind of distills the whole thing down to the essence, that the social life of the old South, he writes, had its faults. I am far from denying what civilization has not. But its virtues far outweighed them. Its graces were never equal. Um, for all its fault, it was, I believe, the purest, sweetest life ever lived. It Christianized the Negro race in a little over two centuries, impressed upon it regard for order, and gave it the only civilization it has ever possessed since the dawn of history. <laughs> wow. um, it has maintained the supremacy of the Caucasian race, upon which all civilization seems now to depend. So you know, you read that, and you just want to reach back in time and shake him. Um, but then the illustrations. So. Here's the butler. The butler was apt to be severe and was feared. Um, so there he is, Ramrod Street, English butler. And 
then the mammy, the caption is interesting here because it says she was never anything but tender with the audience. And the context for that caption is, you know, she would slap her own kids around, but she was never anything but tender with the white babies. So we have here this completely fraudulent, completely um, sugar-coated view of the old South. And origin of the Moonlight and Magnolias tradition in books like Pages, which were, were really quite popular. So we end up around 1900 with an array of different forms of representation, which leaves us with the question of white construction and black agency. They're both dressed the same, but he's a slave. He's free. Uh, he's nude and hopeless. So um, it's kind of like the blind men and the elephant, which is one of my favorite little you know, sort of parables for looking at art or interpreting anything. You know, the Rudyard Kipling poem where there are these blind men and there's an elephant, and one of them grabs the tail and says, oh, I think the elephant is like a rope. And one you know, feels the side of the elephant and says, oh, no, the elephant is like a wall. Another one grabs the trunk and says, no, it's like a snake, and so on and so forth. And nobody's right, nobody's wrong, but nobody gets the big picture. So um, you know, looking at the way emancipation and reconstruction represented in the South is very different kind of dilemma. Um, I hope we have time for discussion. I'm sorry to probably ran on, but Yeah, so, so those, are, those are good questions, but I would say it's not meant to be 
reporting is, is really similar. That's, it's like, how does art get made, you know, and what's it for? So, you know, he, he spent a, quite a lot of time with Mr. Stanislaw. He sketched constantly watercolor drawings. Uh, he probably saw this boat or something like this. He certainly studied a lot of like, black men and boys who were fishing and plunge diving. He never shows them doing anything like intellectual. It's all very like, part of nature. So he's taking in all this visual kind of observation. And so everything we see in the Gulf Stream, I think, or most, most things we see in the Gulf Stream, probably had their origin in what we encouraged, you know, like, like the boat. So this is 1885. So maybe he saw a wrecked boat and he added some sharks, or maybe he saw some sharks. Um, but then in 1889, look how he puts a man on the boat. It's the same boat. Uh, but then he puts somebody in it. Uh, and then, you know, finally, he adds a whole lot of other things. And we have the Gulf Stream. So, are, are all from, or probably most of them are now all from his records, he kept visual records, what was in his memory. Um, 
this was painted in the studio. He painted it in the name, about as far as you can get from the Caribbean. And at this level of art making, it's not evidence anymore of life in the Caribbean so much as it is something that we read metaphorically or allegorically from the place. You know, I think he probably made up the truth. And, uh, and I think that you know, some, some people don't really think that this, they don't like this painting a lot because it's, they think it's too cluttered uh, compared to the elemental quality of a lot of the works. But I think it's very powerful. And I think that the symbolism has to be there for it to have the challenge. That's, you know, that's, I thought about that question for probably the whole time I've been an historian, so that's why I put it. <laughs> yes. So this, um, so the thing turns to the black mirror in 
to get together and sketch and talk and eventually visit him and then it became a great place to you know, sort of network and interest wealthy buyers in the people. By the way, Century Associations is right here in New York. And they have, you know, I don't think you can get in unless it's another place, but they do have quite a notable collection of paintings. Anyway, so so yeah, it would be the big show is the National Academy. have this tradition and, and so it's very 
certainly possible, and I think a good idea, to read that into this painting. Um, and Sam was, as you know, he was black, and yet um, he was much more educated and affluent and cultivated than the people he paints in these works. Guessing, I think, among other things, his own was kind of removed from that culture from which his, his ancestors came. And so, you know, is he, is he himself or is he another? So that's one of the questions artists or other people who need to live as well. Carry on your roots, or uh, leave your roots in the culture.
direction, but where would you go from there? Would it be about casting or something? It, you know, it, it would be about casting, but it could also change the power dynamics amongst the, the four women and the child, and, and that there is a mutual recognition I also think that, you know, the descriptions that you provided of the African Americans as, you know, looking kind of rough or, you know, poorly dressed and, you know, their, their physical circumstances uh, being inferior to potentially the mistresses, oh, you know, I, my read of the scene, I mean, you know, they're not in a Victorian home, that's for sure. Yeah. But there is a, a preservation of their uh, humanity, their, you know, their uh, drive to uh, present themselves in socially acceptable ways, you know, they're not in clothes that are falling apart or uh, terribly ragged. I think that there's a way in which Homer may be, you know, um, honoring the domestic sphere that black women create that affirms I do see these figures as amazingly dignified and real. You know, they don't seem like stereotypes to me. They seem like people who saw painted or painted. Obviously, or at least we hope. I mean, we know that he must have had models that he probably paid or something like that. Um, and uh, he does you know, seem to recognize. That's why, that's why I find Homer so interesting because the people who paint him so seem so well human. You know, and that's mighty refreshing after you see a thousand caricatures where the people look so human. You know? Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean I, I don't like the way you're thinking about these figures. Yeah. Uh, they'll probably be glad when she's dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
necessarily slave owners, but I mean, we don't know. Those histories are very complex, which would, which would at least add another layer of ambiguity to the painting, which you've been stressing a lot, the, the ambiguities and the uncertainties of Homer. Mm -hmm. So to me, when I look at that, it just sort of, it's like it, it's not to dismiss questions about the status as a mistress, yeah. which you may very well be or not, but it just adds a lot of uncertainty and about that question of, of what what is what is a kind of recognition versus um, a still clear power division between these figures. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to overread it, but mm -hmm. I do think that the Petersburg piece is kind of suggestive. So, so that's interesting though. And then say that the Petersburg actually had a, a population before the war of uh, three black women. Right? So it was very hard to make Gain status as property owners, as yeah, it was respectable. Became property owners, so knowing that might add even another layer of complexity or ambiguity to the reading. Yeah. Actually, she's a little bit ragged. Her sleeves, she is kind of torn. Um, but at the same time, she's like a, I always think of her as a column. You know, she's like a column. She's so straight and tall, round and you know, just immovable. Um, and she's wearing a ring on one finger. And the one with the baby also has a ring. She has a ring. The rings are kind of interesting, why are they? You need to get a good reproduction of painting to see the painting to really um, see the rings. And, and I mentioned this the other day in my meeting with Rachel, a fascinating patch on the, 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 the bodice of the woman with the baby. It's a piece of paisley. The paisley shawls were worn by affluent women. The big fashion range. And so the implication seems to be at least why is she wearing a case like that? It refers to where the shawl, the material that it came from, which used to be a white woman's shawl, and now a black woman's patch. Um, and that's just something to sort of think about. I don't have kind a of glib answer for it, but you know, as I've said before, or never put anything in a painting without some reason, I think. But most artists don't. But, um, 
praise of that just that resonates for me. Thanks for that question. I'm glad I got to mention that. 